You're listening to The Gospel, Race, and Justice, a sermon series at Sojourn Church Midtown. Join us as we have a conversation about ethnicity, reconciliation, and the church. Today's scripture reading is Luke 19, 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd, since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus, since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain, He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, peace be with you. Hey, for those of you who are in the sanctuary in the house uh, this morning, I just want to say hello. My name is Jamal Williams, and I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn uh, Church, and we are thrilled. We are glad that you're here to worship with us. For those of you who are watching online, we want to say that we miss you. We love you. We are eager uh, to see you, and uh, we pray that you will remain safe and healthy. Uh, Today, we're going to continue our series on the gospel, race, and justice. Amen? And we are uh, going into our sixth uh, sermon today on on the topic. In sermon uh, one, we kind of gave a biblical ethnicity, uh, biblical theology, excuse me, of ethnicity, uh, which uh, I think was helpful for people. And then we built on that. Week two, we talked about this big, beautiful gospel that Pastor Jarvis preached, the gospel that is vertical, horizontal, and cosmological. And week three, we looked at Acts six, and we learned some principles uh, there about the early church and how when they had some ethnic tension and how uh, they went about uh, handling that. And as we looked at uh, Acts six, uh, we were able to be encouraged and looked at how God shakes structures and systems um, with the gospel. Our fourth sermon, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and the themes there of power and privilege. And we looked how power or privilege is not something that we should deny. Uh, neither is it something that we should destroy. We see those two extremes when the world talks about it. But rather, we deploy it. We deploy it. Jesus, the Bible says, was rich and he became poor for our sake. Um, He used uh, what he had and he deployed it for our sake. Um, And then last Wednesday, yes, on Wednesday, you may not have come. Maybe you didn't hear about it. uh, We had a special Wednesday night service, which we heard testimonies from members of our church about how the Lord had been impacting them with the sermon and conversations within our community group. And we looked at the gospel and love, the gospel and love. Today, we're going to talk about the gospel and generosity, the gospel and generosity. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, truly, we do overcome by, the, uh, by your blood, by your son, Jesus Christ's blood, and, and through the testimony 
of his blood and what he's done for us. And I pray, Father God, that you would just uh, speak as we dive into a, a difficult topic that we need to talk about. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of my mouth and a meditation of my heart and that they would be acceptable to you. Oh, Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Speak, Lord, before your sermon, before your servants are listening. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, as we uh, move forward today, if I had to sum up uh, the sermon in a sentence, it would simply be this. The gospel forms generous people who live with soft hearts, open hands and active feet that seek justice for the oppressed while telling them about Jesus, the world's true hope. And it's a lot there. But in essence, what I want to show you and argue uh, today from the word of God is that the gospel makes us a more generous people, not not a greedy people, not a tight fisted people. And we're not just going to look at this from a financial standpoint, though that is uh, certainly uh, a main point in this text. We're also just going to look at at it from a, a spiritual standpoint. The spirit of the gospel enables us to be generous towards others, grace filled towards others. Now, in order to show this, we're going to talk about uh, some historical realities. Historical truth telling uh, can help us and is necessary to help us to create genuine communion. It has been said where common memory is lacking where people do not share the same past, there can be no real community. Where the community is to be formed, common memory must be created. And as your pastor, um, and as the one who's preaching to you, even if I'm not your pastor, I just want you to know that this sermon comes uh, from a a place of deep vexation. It is birthed out of a place of of deep personal pain, both as a a person and as a pastor, because as we talk about the gospel, race and justice, both within the church in America, um, as well as within secular society, this is a a very uh, discouraging conversation. This this is a, a very oftentimes hopeless conversation. But as Christians, we should not be hopeless because we are prisoners of hope. But part of the reason that makes this conversation so hard um, is because uh, many times people just don't have an accurate view of history. Um, I've had the privilege of preaching and consulting and talking to churches all over the country. And, And many times it's went well, but many times I've walked away with deep wounds and deep pain and exasperated because we have learned a very slanted view of history. And so part of the reason we're going through this series is to set this conversation in historical context, but more importantly, to, to, to show this conversation through a, lot, a gospel lens. And so part of where I want to start today is right here in Louisville, as, as many of us need to learn and understand what has happened in our city so that we can better love and care for marginalized communities. In Louisville, starting in 1942, um, uh, up into the early 1960s, we had a street that was called Walnut Street. 
And Walnut Street was a a really important street specifically for the African-American communities. Uh, Starting in 1942, um, up into uh, urban renewal, you had about 152 businesses that were either Black-owned or that catered to the Black community. I mean, you can walk down Walnut Street and just be um, overwhelmed with the wonderful aroma of of food as there are many restaurants and and many bakeries. Uh, One person uh, said this during that time. Uh, You can find everything you want on that street. You can make some fast money. You could go broke. You can get entertained. You can get embalmed and you can get fed. You can get fed. But unfortunately, as a result of a number of factories, uh, but mostly as a result of urban renewal, um, by 1962, only two uh, Black-owned businesses existed. And Walnut Street was uh, no longer the center of a Black community that was growing healthier and more middle class. Uh, But now it was uh, the result of a completely new city where Blacks were moved out of that area and dispersed um, all throughout Louisville, specifically, I should say mostly, on the west end of town. 333 families were moved as a result of urban renewal in one community here in, in Louisville. And all but one of those families were white. In fact, throughout the country, urban renewal has been called Negro renewal, as the areas in which were renewed was mostly areas in which there was black communities. And only 30% of those families that were removed through urban renewal actually were helped to relocate. Many families that were already struggling with poverty went deeper into poverty as they were not able to buy homes or even to go to schools that were in good areas of town because of uh, uh, racist housing policies. One person spoke of Black Louisville and said this, the clearing of Walnut vandalized the social fabric of the Black community. Luther Adams writes, because Blacks overwhelmingly lived in Louisville's poorest neighborhoods, displacement mainly impacted those with the least social and economic resources and challenged urban renewal or to shape it to suit their own interests. In one development area, urban renewal projected uh, pr- project displaced, excuse me, 333 African-American families, only one white family. Blacks represented 85 percent of those who di- were dislocated by slum clearance, as it came to be called. And the city, as I said, only relocated 30 percent. While I was at Forest Baptist Church, I got to uh, become close with an older man who was just the most gentle and kind man. And I'll never forget, I was preaching a sermon series on uh, race at Forest, and we got to have a, it's a historic African-American church. We got to have an honest conversation about race. It was interesting because a lot of the people there just didn't want to talk about it because they were kind of really tired of it and they were carrying some great pain. But one gentleman that was there that I talked to was in college during the time of urban renewal or what came to be known as Negro renewal. And I'll never forget him crying with tears, an older man in his 60s, as he told me the experience that his family went through. And members of their community who owned businesses, who were beginning to make progress, and who had it all pulled from under their feet. 
In fact, if a family wanted to relocate and live in a nicer area town where there were more grocery stores and food and where it was growing, um, they had to do trickery um, just to move in. Anne Braden, who was a lifelong activist and also um, a a white woman here in Louisville, um, has become known um, for her generosity in the city. There was a, a black family that she knew who were displaced because of urban renewal. And the black family really wanted to, because they had the means and the money, to live in a different side of town. So what Ann Braden and her family did is they purchased a home for this family in a white suburb. Ann would end up going to court later and being accused uh, and tried as a, a communist conspirator in 1954. But this black family that moved in, a husband and wife with a little girl, just six weeks after moving in, had their home bombed. The bomb was placed under the daughters, the young daughter who I believe was was six, as I said, under her room. By God's grace, she didn't die. She wasn't home at the time, although the uh, two, uh, the African-American couple, were home and in a different part of the house, and they ended up surviving. This is history. And this just didn't happen in Louisville. This happened in just about every major city. As the African-American community was starting to make progress out of, uh, from under the foot of slavery, convict leasing, which was, a, a, which was the second version of slavery, where black men were charged with petty t- crimes and then forced to work to build railroads and other places all over the city. Um, and not be paid for it. Jim Crowism and other and other things. We see that urban renewal and other factors kind of came in and and leveled a community. Now, if this is uncomfortable for you, good, because I want you to take that uncomfort, maybe that disdain, maybe that disbelief. Um, Preferably, it's not guilt, as we've talked about. Our goal is not to guilt you. Guilt doesn't free anyone. Guilt doesn't help anyone. God has saved us not to be guilty, but to be free. There's no condemnation in Christ. But I want you to take all of that, and I want you to aim what you're feeling right now at a man named Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus and Israel uh, would have been disdained. We read in verse 1 that he Uh, lived in in Jericho more than likely. And this is the place where Jesus was passing through. And verse 2 tells us that uh, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Not only was he a tax collector, but he was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. And the thing we want to understand about Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector is that historically, tax collectors in Israel um, practiced injustice and they defrauded people. Oftentimes, the Roman uh, government would hire someone from within uh, a town that they had conquered or taken over. Uh, So think about Israel, think about Jericho. And they would find someone who knows the city really well, who has great influence, and they would hire them to collect taxes for them. They wanted to make sure that they got every dime that they wanted out of that city. 
And what they would do in hiring that tax collector is they would say, this is the base we want out of that city from taxes. Go get it. And anything you can raise after that is your salary. And so what often would happen is these tax collectors would go into these cities armed with Roman guards and they became a mob of sorts of their own as they would uh, penalize people and terrorize people who were poor, who didn't pay their taxes. And so Zacchaeus was one of these men and he was greatly hated. One Jewish document states this, a tax collector was so loathsome that they could not even be considered human and that it was not a sin to lie to them because lying to an animal is not a sin. And Zacchaeus is at the top of the food train. But the text says that Zacchaeus on this day is going to experience great transformation. Verse 3 says that he was uh, trying to see Jesus as Jesus was passing through, but he couldn't see because of the crowd. Now, I like to use my holy uh, imagination here and just imagine Zacchaeus, this man, man who has a mark on him, trying to get through the crowds to see Jesus. And as he's trying to get through the crowd to see Jesus, he's kind of being nudged and bumped and, and blocked out of seeing it. Uh, most people know that in crowds, if there's someone who is shorter or if there's someone is a child, you're normally going to kind of let them through to see the front. But Zacchaeus probably can't make it to the front of the crowd, not only because he's short, but, but possibly because he's despised. But Zacchaeus desperately wants to see Jesus. Desperately wants to see Jesus. And why does Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? Because Jesus had this reputation of being an incredible preacher. He had this reputation of, of taking on um, the burdens of the least of these in society. He was a healer. But he also had this reputation, according to Matthew chapter 9, of being a friend of sinners. He was unlike any rabbi of his time. He made space for tax collectors. In fact, Zacchaeus probably heard about this man named Matthew, who was also a tax collector and who had met Jesus and who had given up tax collecting and followed him. Zacchaeus hears about this Jesus coming to town. And the Bible says, verse four, he runs ahead and he climbs up a sycamore tree to see Jesus. This is a man of desperation. This is a man who wants his life to be changed. This is a man who, with whom the Holy Spirit is probably working in his heart. Now, this text doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but we know the gospel of Luke talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. In fact, whenever there's like a, a major moment in the gospel of Luke, there's oftentimes a, a link uh, to the Holy Spirit being at work. We see this in chapter one of Luke with Jesus's birth. We see this in chapter two with, the, uh, with how God was working with Mary. We see this at his baptism. We see this at his temptation. Luke chapter four, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and he says that it is the spirit of the living God who has empowered me to preach the gospel to the poor and to the brokenhearted. Throughout the gospel of Luke, throughout the book of Acts, there's this emphasis of the Holy Spirit. So Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, not because Zacchaeus has just simply come to an end of himself. 
in his own might or in his own strength. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus because the Holy Spirit has been stirring him up to see things differently, has been convicting him about his own sinfulness, his own defrauding. And he is hoping that Jesus will embrace him. Even though others are having a hard time with Zacchaeus' presence. Verse 5, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up. This is Jesus. He looks up and he sees Zacchaeus. And listen to what he says. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay in your house. Do you remember the day when you heard Jesus's voice and when you received the invitation to become a part of his family? Well, this was Zacchaeus on this day. Up in a sycamore tree, looking like a fool, don't care, a man of dignity in an honor and shame culture where running and climbing trees for an adult was seen as foolish. He risked his reputation. He climbs the tree. Jesus looks at him and Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. I'm coming over. And the reason that this is a big deal is because to share a meal in that culture To share one's home with someone else was a sign of friendship and intimacy. Zacchaeus understood that what Jesus was doing is is that Jesus was accepting him, that Jesus was making space for him, that even though he was a sinner, even though he was a crook, even though he was unjust, even though he was a defrauder, there was hope for him. And if you are here today and you came to Sojourn Midtown or you're watching on TV and you're wondering, is there hope for me? I want you to know that there's a man named Jesus who can make you right with God the Father, who came and lived the perfect life that you could not live who is a friend of sinners and who says to you today, welcome me into your heart, welcome me into your home, and I can make you new. Zacchaeus responds, look at verse six. He responds, the Bible says he quickly comes down. Notice the progression. He runs, he climbs up a sycamore tree. He quickly comes down and he is full of joy. Verse seven, and all who saw it begin to complain. He's gone to stay with the sinful men. They begin to complain because they don't understand how this rabbi who claims to be from God, who's doing all of these miracles, would go and spend time, make his home with a man who is so wretched. Verse eight, but Zacchaeus stood there. I like that. He ran, he climbed, he quickly came down and now he's standing. This is a sign of resolution. He stood there and look at what Zacchaeus said. Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. This is a sign of a man who has been transformed from the inside out. This is a sign of repentance. To repent means to have a change of mind, to be going in one direction, and then, because of a change of mind, to go in the complete opposite direction, 180-degree change. This is a man who prided himself on wealth, 
and who was greedy and who suddenly, because he met Jesus, is transformed to be generous because the grace of God has made him this. Now, I want you to understand what justified Zacchaeus and what made Zacchaeus right in this text is not the fact that he is saying, I will give half of my belongings to the poor and that I am willing to make restitution up to four times. That's not where Zacchaeus' righteousness is made. What makes Zacchaeus right with God is faith alone. The Bible teaches us that we are saved by faith through grace, by grace through faith, right? It is not of our good works. So we're saved by faith, we're saved by grace, and we're saved by Christ alone. But what this is, is the fruit of repentance. As James says, faith without works is dead. Genuine faith is accompanied by the fruits of repentance, by change of behavior as God begins to work deeply in our hearts. And I also want to say this. I praise God that I live in a country in which I can work hard and by the grace of God and with some few touches or with some touches of grace um, that I and others can move from one place of, of wealth to another, from poverty, perhaps to middle class. I praise God. I love that about America. And what I'm not teaching here is that, uh, We or you, especially white people, should give half of what they have to the poor and necessarily pay restitutions. This is not me asking for 40 uh, uh, acres and a mule. Okay, I'll leave that conversation up to economists and to the political world. What I am arguing is, is that the gospel makes us generous is that the gospel shapes us to be a people who are open-handed and a people who have a heart for the poor and the marginalized. And so if you're a professing Christian and you look down on people who are poor and you oversimplify it by putting all the onus on uh, uh, people who are poor and you degrade them and you see them as a, a nuance to society, I want you to know you are missing the heart of God. The poor are mentioned in the scripture 2,300 times. The Bible regularly talks about the poor. Under the law, even when slaves were released after seven years of paying their debt to whoever they had a debt to, it was commanded that uh, those who oversaw uh, that person, that they would send them out with generosity and in abundance. God has a heart for the poor. Jesus has a heart for the poor. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus teaches, blessed are the poor. He doesn't add, as Matthew does in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor. He just says, blessed are the poor. We see in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, on the last day, there will be two types of people, people who are sheep and people who are goats. And the thing in Matthew chapter 25 that separates the sheep and the goats are that those who are sheep are those whose lives over time showed the evidence of having the heart of God. And what's the heart of God? They fed the hungry. They clothed the naked. They visit those who were in prison. Zacchaeus 
is so broken over his sin that he joyfully says, look, Lord, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor and anything else that I exhorted, I'll pay you up to four times. My question for you today, Christian, is has the gospel made you a generous person? Has the gospel that you believe, has the gospel that we sing about, has the gospel that we preach about actually transformed our lives to be generous? And as I look at the landscape of the American church, I weep and I'm vexed because oftentimes in the American church, that has not been the case specifically for the black community. And I question and I wonder what would life be like in America? What would life be like in our churches if we had been generous instead of at times greedy and hard hearted? What would have happened if the church would have responded to the abolition with gospel generosity? What would have happened if Christians as an act of repentance and restitution gave the best of the land and not the worst to those who were immediately impacted by slavery? What would it look like if they had received free schooling, better education, had been welcomed into neighborhoods where there were grocery stores and and schools instead of threatened and isolated and shamed? What what could have been? Did you know that two months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an executive order that all Japanese Americans had to evacuate the West Coast? I want you to contrast this with the fact that no interment of German Americans occurred uh, despite being at war with Germany at the time. And this resulted in the forced incarceration of nearly 120,000 people the majority of whom were U.S. citizens, and they were divided into 10 internment camps across the country. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan signed into law the Civil Liberties Act, which admitted to government actions being a result of race prejudice, war hysteria, and the failure of political leadership. And as a result of this admission, each camp survivor was rewarded with reparations of $20,000. To my knowledge, this has never happened here in America to descendants of slaves. Maybe at some individual cases where there were uh, slave owners being kind. But instead, when you read the history of African-Americans in this in this country, 85 percent, 85 percent of their existence were under unjust laws that intentionally targeted them and kept them out of places of economic development. And sure, there are cases of of people coming up. There are plenty of people who have succeeded from the African-American community. But many times those are the exception when you look at the the numbers financial. We talked about how the African-American community, just like every other community, have self-inflicted wounds. We have things that we must work on. But my point is, is that the church must cultivate a heart 
that actually sees why there is an outcry on the street so much. Why there is so much brokenness. And sure, poverty is hard for everybody. There are, of course, white people who are impoverished in our community. We have white people who are impoverished. We have people who are immigrants who are impoverished. We have people from every ethnicity who are impoverished. And my response is we need to be generous to them, too. We need to make sure we take the love and compassion of Christ to them, too. We as a church need to do everything that we possibly can to not only use our financial resources, but to use what God has gifted with us to actually impact those who are around us. And so I want to encourage us as a church to continue gospel generosity. So let's continue to press into the health needs of this community by doing health uh, class. Let's continue to press into the, the uh, educational needs of this community by continuing to offer tutor ministries. Let's continue to, to, to press into the creativity needs of this community by offering art in the park and by cultivating beauty. And my goodness, let's make sure we continue to live with resiliency. That's the word I'm looking for. Y'all like resentment? No, let's not do that. With a resiliency on mission for the people of this community. What would it look like if the church stands up and rather than tweeting, Facebooking, insulting, throwing statistics out and shutting down people who are saying they're hurting, what if we actually listened and said, like Zacchaeus, Lord, anything I can do to help, to make what's right wrong, use me. And you say, well, I didn't create systemic injustice. I'm not a racist. Praise God. I hope that's true. You're probably right. And I would conclude that uh, while the seed of, of racism and every other sin is in my heart, that I'm not either. But as a Christian, I have a responsibility to give people the hope of the gospel, a gospel that, he has, that says that he has made the two one and that he has given us peace through the cross. Has the gospel made you generous? Are you growing in generosity towards your neighbors? Do you see their pain? Do you hear their story? Are you empathetic to their suffering? Are you entering into conversations about justice with a heart of generosity? Or is your heart full of pride, deflection, hypercriticism, and buts? It's time to get our buts out of the way. Gospel generosity is what Jesus shows here when he loves Zacchaeus, one who was defrauding, one who deserved judgment, but instead who received grace. Gospel generosity is what we need. Finally, I want to show you that God, uh, Christian generosity or gospel generosity, it also cuts in the other direction. 
I want you to imagine being the, one of the people with whom Zacchaeus wronged and intimidated. And I want you to, to hear, imagine that you're one of these people and you hear that Jesus is spending time with them. I want you to understand that the same gospel that softened Zacchaeus' heart and that enabled him to repent should also soften the, your heart and to help you to forgive. If you're one of the people who Zacchaeus has defrauded, if you're one of the people who Zacchaeus has taken advantage of, the gospel also calls you to be generous if you hear that Jesus has welcomed him into your community, that he is now a brother in Christ. Gospel generosity calls you to forgive him, to not treat him as a debtor, to not try to make him feel guilty about what happened, to not put demands on him, but to be willing to say your debt is forgiven. I'm just glad that you are a brother in Christ. Now, forgiveness does not mean that there doesn't have to be hard conversations about reconciliation. Forgiveness does not mean that that someone does not have the right to say, hey, brother, you cheated me out of this. Now that you're a brother in Christ, I would like that justice to be paid. Justice is rendering to one person uh, what they are due as image as those who are created in the image of God. But it does mean that I'm not walking around embittered and mistreating someone whom God loves and who has created in his image. And make no mistake about it, Jesus would have fallen under this systemic oppression as well as he was a Jewish man who, who, sold, who paid taxes. And so you have Jesus who grew up under this oppressive system and regime showing grace to a man who was oppressing. And let me just go on a quick rant. I mean, what you going to do? Scream no? That's the worst that can happen. Then security come and get you. But people kill me when they talk about that there is no systemic injustice or structural sin. I, I, I mean, seriously, you see it right here in the text. There's personal sin with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus is a part of a system that is intentionally oppressing people for the benefit of the whole of the Roman government so that there will be better roads, bigger buildings, richer, wealthier people. And then we say, well, that doesn't happen today. Did you see what happened in Flint, Michigan? I'm, I praise God for the $600 million settlement that was just settled, though it should have been more, because some kids right now uh, can't think or breathe because they had lead-filled water intentionally run through their pipes. And even after complaints were made throughout a city that was mostly black and brown, nothing was done. Oh, and by the way, charges aren't being pressed for those who were at the table to make that decision. I'm editing and skipping some stuff here. So how do we cultivate gospel generosity? Do three things. First, we cultivate it by, by 
never forgetting that we are Zacchaeus. Never forgetting that we are Zacchaeus. Justice is ugly when we pursue it without Jesus in our own flesh, without open Bibles, because we become self-righteous. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee who goes in to the uh, synagogue to pray, I mean, the temple to pray. And there's a tax collector there. And the Pharisee um, begins to pray and the tax collector begins to pray. The tax collector prays, God, I, uh, Lord, would you have mercy upon me, a sinner? And the Pharisee, this religious leader, his prayer is, Lord, I thank God I'm not like this tax collector. When the gospel is not shaping our hearts, we become pharisaical. And don't we see this on TV? We become people at a restaurant shouting down people who are eating a meal with a sign, breathing over them, telling them to raise their fists and say a mantra. We become people who are so angered and embittered that when we meet people who are white, we automatically assume that they're racist and put them in a category. We become those people who judge people who are on a different place in their journey and who are even willing to take away somebody's Christianity because they vote differently than us. Brothers and sisters, you're Zacchaeus, I'm Zacchaeus. And if not for the grace of God, we will be the source of injustice and defrauding people. Second, it's by seeking the face of Jesus. I love how Zacchaeus The change and transformation happens as he seeks Jesus's face. I'm going to make this point really quickly and very pointed. I'm really nervous about the body of Christ because a lot of us are more discipled by Thomas Scholl and by, uh, uh, what's that that dude's name? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Sean King, than we are Jesus Christ. Lord knows if you're discipled by Sean King, praise Jesus. God help you. We are more discipled by Fox News commentators than we are by the one who saved us. And so we have these conversations with people and the conversation is not even about Jesus. Jesus is nowhere in the middle of it. We're just regurgitating what we saw on the news. We ain't picked up a primary source. We hadn't read history from either vantage point. We don't nuance. We just drop bombs to protect our little worlds. And Jesus, all the while, is just like, you're stressed out. You're becoming mean. You look like the world on social media. I've invited you to rest and to peace and to be a prisoner of hope and a conduit of hope. And you look just like the rest of these foolish people. Seek his face. Third, we do it by depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. Too often we enter into these conversations in the flesh and we need God's spirit. I love Jesus. And Jesus was a bad man. He gets a bad rap all around. Bad rap all around. From those who will be considered politically conservative and maybe all conservative and those who are politically conservative and 
maybe all conservative. This is a bad rap. We just make Jesus look so sometimes unattractive, so menial, so miniature, just so, he's so beautiful. He's so intriguing, so interesting. People picking up stones, throw stones, and he's playing and diddling in sand. People are condemning and he's giving grace. People are going about the systems and and structures that are ungodly and he's flipping over tables. It's like, man, Jesus is such a wonder. I mean, isn't it fascinating? People talk about, well, Jesus didn't come. All he did is preach the gospel. What? He healed blind people. He opened deaf ears. And and I don't read anywhere where he charged people for it either. And that's not a political statement. I'm just saying. He did more than preach the gospel. He went after people who had power in society and not with condemnation, but with love and grace. It wasn't by mistake that he's in a crowd of people and that he points to Zacchaeus. Because he knows Zacchaeus, if I get your heart, I might agitate Jericho a little bit and and the poor and the marginalized and and, and my disciples who are going to be trying to make disciples in this city may be able to do so while living a a quiet life. He he calls people like Saul who are self-righteous Pharisees and he goes after Saul who's leading an attack against the church. That's not by accident. Jesus cared about systems and structures and he cared about the poor. He preached the gospel and he fed 5,000. Some of us, the reason we put ourselves behind all of these excuses and reasons is because we just like being comfortable. Just tell the truth and shame the devil. We're greedy. We don't want to tithe. We don't want to give to to people who are are, are poor and who are hurting. We, We don't want to take the time to actually learn someone's story. And maybe to be enlightened and and to learn that what made them impoverished and poor wasn't necessarily sin. And they're not actually just lazy welfare queens, but they have a story. They have dignity. We don't want to take the time to get to know them, to disciple them out of what they're in. And to be one of those people who gives the touch of grace. I'm so glad for people in my life who was generous, got to know me. Mm, So much I want to say, but Jesus didn't just preach the gospel. If he just preached the gospel, he would have been stoned. He wasn't stoned, he was crucified. Rome played a part in his death because he was a threat not only to the Jewish religious system, but to the political power structure of Rome. And I'm so glad he died on that cross because I'm Zacchaeus, because I'm full of baggage and brokenness and contradictions. But what makes me right is not what I do, it's what I believe, what justifies me is Christ's sacrifice and his righteousness. And it also empowers me to do good works. For faith without works is dead.
Every Sunday, we gather together, take a meal to reflect on just how amazing Jesus is, how generous he was and is. In front of your seats, if you're a Christian, you'll find a communion package. Even if you're not a Christian, you'll find one. But uh, this is a meal for Christians. And we take this as Christians to remind us of what Christ has done and to preach to ourselves, to a watching world, this big gospel that makes us right vertically, horizontally, and that gives us cosmological hope that this is not the end. This is not, praise God, this is not the end. Oh, we would be so cynical. We would be so argumentative. We would be so mean. We would be clamoring for political power if we thought this was the end. But it's not. And this meal reminds us that it's not. And we take this wafer and we eat it. We drink this juice remembering the blood of Jesus, which was shed for me and you and which washes us and makes us clean. And we do this as a family, black, white, Latino, Asian, tall, short, young, old, rich and poor to remind us that we are part of a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-everything family. Let's stand to our feet, let's worship. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.